Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome. I'm Elaine Miller Karras, and I would like to, to greet all of our listeners today. We have three amazing women that are going to talk to us about um, nursing and the moral injury that's occurring right now. You also can email me at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. But let's talk a little bit about what my show is about today. And it's about burnout and moral injury amongst healthcare workers. And and we're going to share with you some ideas for helping um, nurses during these unprecedented times. And we also have a bonus. We have uh, my colleagues, Drs. Grabby and Duva, that ha- were uh, already planned to be on the show. But Marianne Baird is also with us, and she will um, tell you a little bit about her job at Emory University. And so I'm going to just start by saying that um, what we're going to discuss is how healthcare workers can care for themselves during the pandemic and, through the, and, and also through this experience of moral injury. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Um, Dr. Wendy Dean stated that moral injury occurs when healthcare providers are, repeat, are repeatedly expected in the course of providing care to make choices that transgress their longstanding, deeply held commitment to healing. So from June to September, Mental Health um, America polled more than 1,100 healthcare workers about COVID-19, finding that 93% reported stress, 86% reported anxiety, 77% frustration, 76% exhaustion and burnout, and 75% said they were overwhelmed. So healthcare workers have been asked to work in unimagined conditions, taking extra shifts, caring for more patients in intensive care units, and sometimes asked to make ethical conditions about who is next in line for the next bed. They also have often received questions from ind- individuals dying from COVID and their family members who, who do not believe in the diagnosis and sometimes are challenging their efforts to care for them. Many healthcare workers, including nurses, respiratory therapists, and more are leaving the profession they have loved and cherished because the toll has been too great on them personally and professionally. And there is really no end in sight. So the three nurses that I'm talking, that are talking today are also with uh, Nell Hodgson's Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory University. And this is in Atlanta, Georgia. And all three are certified CRIM practitioners. Now, Marianne, I'm going to have you go first and just say a little bit about your background before I introduce um, Lindy and, and, um, and Ingrid. Yes, thank you, Elaine. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I am, my title is a registered nurse. I'm a clinical nurse specialist, and my specialty area is critical care. Uh, the work that I'm doing now, though, is primarily focused on promoting excellence. And so I am often involved in a lot of the discussions that surround what works and what doesn't work with what we're faced with in today's crisis environment. 
So um, again, I can offer perspective as someone who is working in a hospital, um, who is um, interacting with leaders and staff alike, and have been in this role throughout the pandemic. So I think that's enough. Yes, and I'm really, and thank you so much for joining us because you have a unique perspective that we're going to want to hear from right from the beginning. Well, let me say a little bit about Dr. Grabby. She's a board-certified family nurse practitioner and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And boy, she's been racking up the awards. She received nursing's highest honor in 2020 when the American Academy of Nurses recognized her as a fellow in the American um, in the American Academy of Nursing. But also, she wrote... Um, an article, a research paper with her and a number of others that was published in Nursing Outlook. And it was named, which I, I am just absolutely, am, I'm, I'm so excited by this, Lindy. You got the research award of the year for this article that it, it is all the community resiliency model. So, and that's going to make it um, also, I understand, free online where people can download the article. And we'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. There's so much more we could say about Dr. Grabby, but I think that gives you a little context about what she's been up to in the world. So, Dr. Ingrid Hopkins-Duba has both research and healthcare leadership experience focused on supporting nurses and healthcare team members in their work. She offers expertise in implementation, education, and workforce well-being. And she's been one of the primary investigators on a study exploring the effectiveness of a one-hour virtual community model, um, CRIM training, on healthcare worker well-being and job engagement during COVID-19. But also Dr. Grabby and 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 Marianne Baird has have also been involved with this. So, all right, so let's get started. So I'm going to ask you, Marianne, first, because I know that you can only be with us for about a half an hour. Um, so as a, nurse, a nursing leader, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing at, at Emory? What are the challenges that you're seeing that nurses are facing? You know, we had this upswing from the Delta variant. I understand it's coming down a little bit in Georgia, but we know that there's other parts of the country that are rationing care. Um, patients are, you know, having a hard time finding beds. And I think this is happening in a lot of the rural areas. I've been reading a lot about Alaska and also Idaho. But can you tell us a little bit about your perspective about this? What's been happening? Yes, Elaine, thank you. Uh, I think that uh, the uh, most troubling aspect of the pandemic is the impact that it has had on our whole work environment structure. Uh, we have had an incredible exodus of our staff and have ended up with not enough staff members. And even with looking to agencies and so forth to try to help support us, we're not always able to manifest equals. Um, we may be able to replace people, but the people and their skill level are different than the skill level that we lost through the exodus. The exodus is caused by agencies offering triple pay um, to what that nurses were making at the bedside in their regular job. And that goes for any level of nurse. It is not uncommon to see that a, a brand new nurse out of nursing school can make as much as somebody who has been out for a very long time going for this to the same agency to work. And that staffing crisis 
has a downstream effect on everything that we do. Uh, most nurses come into the profession because that they have their heart in the right place. They want to make a difference. They want to try to help uh, improve mankind and provide comfort and so forth. And the fewer people that you have, the less that you can do that. And therein lies where some of the moral crisis comes from. Now, in the urban environment, um, we're in an urban environment in all of our entities within Emory Healthcare. Um, we have not been as challenged as the rural environment is for resources because we can sort of pool resources. And in an urban environment, you're generally more prepared to deal with crises such as this simply because that you're dealing with a higher volume of patients. And so you need a lot more equipment and people and so forth, all the spectrum of resources to provide what is needed. In rural areas, they don't have that. So in our environment, what we're seeing is primarily um, there is nurse involvement in uh, bed allocation if that we are strapped for beds, but we've created new environments in which to provide care. Uh, we have up uh, upskilled, if you will, um, a lot of nurses to be able to provide care for more highly acute patients, particularly those that are exhibiting the symptoms of COVID. And there's a lot of programs available to us to try to help support that. And we've created some of our own. But that general moral distress is coming from uh, a shortage and not being able to have enough people to provide the type of care needed. Uh, it is no longer about um, the, the, uh, the PPE, the protective equipment, that's kind of gone by the wayside. We've been able to cope with that. And then um, the visitation crisis is also better. There was a time that we had no visitors and now we have um, the ability to have a visitor for more or less every patient that needs that. And we're able to provide uh, more direct contact when people are dying and so forth. Um, and, and that is very comforting for nurses. I think that in addition to the staffing, the lack of family members being there and having nurses having to try to do FaceTime and things like that with people that are trying to say goodbye to family members was extremely stressful. And then lastly, what I'll talk about is the violent environment, because as everything has evolved in this pandemic, um, over time, we've seen a lot more violence uh, amongst the way people in general respond to any kind of stress. And there's a lot more outbursts. There's a lot more altercations. Some of them are physical altercations. And when you're working in a very stressful situation already and layer that on top of it, it becomes almost unmanageable emotionally for a lot of people. Marianne, can I ask you something about that? So when you're talking about the violence, is this violence by the family members towards the nurses or the, the patients towards the nurses or in between nurses? Can you explain a little bit more about what that violence looks like? Um, it, it's all of the above. And then there are... Um, Patients, uh, the emergency department um, in, in my world anyway, is the place that we uh, see probably the highest incidence of people acting out. 
But some of it is people that are struggling out in the community that by and they've coped with situations in various ways. But there's a whole lot more substance abuse and so forth than there's been before. And so folks don't really have any borders when they're in sort of that altered state and they come in and they have physical altercations with our security guards, with our nurses, with everybody. And they try to keep that contained in there, but sometimes that spills out into other areas as well. It's not as prevalent outside of that environment, but it is still prevalent professional to professional sometimes, depending on what that is, just not having enough um, ability to cope with the environment. And so the alter, there's a verbal altercation where folks are frustrated with one another, and it can be physical as well. And that can go, again, between professionals. It can go between professionals and patients. It's just uh, situationally dependent. You know, knowing the three of you and knowing the, the compassionate nature of the three of my guests who are all nurses, and to think about, you know, why you became a nurse and, and um, knowing you as healers, this is not what you signed up for, was it? No, not at all. I mean, it, it, it's definitely not. And um, it, we, we're now going back to reminding people of that as part of our, our coping strategy, in addition to using some of the resiliency techniques, which we've been teaching a whole lot in, a, in our uh, environment here. Um, we're also going back to, you know, reminiscing, okay, remember why you became a nurse and how can we recreate that environment? And that's part of, for me personally, Personally, my work in Emory Healthcare is to try to promote awareness of where our environment is and to try to get the environment back into a way that nurses can be that person that they signed up to be. And that's a tall order right now. It really is. It takes a lot of work, a lot of supporting activities to try to get folks even having the right kind of conversation because of the level of hopelessness because the pandemic has gone on so long. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like there's end in sight. So I'm just going to ask um, uh, Lindy and Ingrid if they'd like to weigh in on what you've been saying and if they have anything they want to add. So um, um, which one of you would like to go first? Go ahead and, and add your comments, please. Ingrid, go. I would only add, I mean, Marianne, I think has summed it up quite nicely, but I would only add that um, – you know, it's there are still stressors outside of the acute care environment where we're not seeing necessarily the patients um, dying or witnessing that as nurses in the outpatient environment um, and other locations that nurses work in. I think there's still there's the struggle though with the values conflict is still very real, and um, you know, keep in mind that healthcare workers have always been at risk for burnout with their job and um, moral distress and moral injury, but this has sort of heightened that um, in the environments that they're in. And uh, I think that they're personally and professionally having some values conflicts and seeing that with patients that they take care of. And so it's a little bit different in the other settings than it is, you know, in the ICUs and in the emergency departments, but some of the same stressors are um, carried over there. I mean, the increase in substance abuse, abuse, the increase in um, frustration amongst people generally. And so that is um, creating sort of a fracture in the work environment everywhere. 
And so, Lindy, do you have anything that you'd like to add to what? Oh, um, I have heard from um, nurses speaking out that um, in Schwartz rounds that um, they feel some rage uh, because with this new wave, their, their patients are people who did not get the vaccination. And um, they and having patients that sick then puts the nurse, nurses and the rest of the medical staff and all of the hospital staff at risk, putting them into danger. So that kind of range, you know, we're already putting our lives on the line, doing the kind of work that we do and, and then having people get sick and perhaps still not even accepting they have COVID. So there's some rage on the side of uh, uh, from, coming from nurses, um, which makes sense. Um, it's almost as if they've been through deployments. So we've had these been waves. War. They've been through a war. Yes. Right. And, uh, you know, this is not what we thought we were getting into, but, but, um, nursing's very, very hard work. Anything in healthcare is. And um, I got interested in um, Prem because um, I, uh, I knew from reading that nurses had like double the rate of, of um, PTSD, depression, suicidality. And so um, that's why um, we started doing. And that was before COVID. That was before COVID. before COVID. But, you know, I'd like to go back to this thing about values because this is, a, I've been pondering this question. So, you know, being a person who reads a lot, I heard, you know, where that value question goes, well, we're vaccinated and we're, there's vaccinations available to you. You don't have to be here struggling for your life. And I wouldn't even have to be caring for you. And I know that, um, I believe at, at Emory, that there is a, the nurses need to, or I guess all healthcare providers have to be vaccinated mm-hmm. or yeah. they're, they're going to be suspended from their employee. So there are many healthcare providers, even though they've seen people die of COVID, that have decided not to get vaccinated. So I'm even wondering, what is that like between the, the, the healthcare providers when you have some people that are adamantly saying, well, I don't need to do that. And others saying, well, if we can do that as a public health emergency, it's not only for us, it's for our community. So could all of you just address that a little bit and maybe illuminate our listeners and me too about, you know, how, how, what, what's, what's up with that? How, how is that getting uh, played out? Well, I can, Ingrid, do you want to go first or? Uh, well, I think you can answer from specifically what you're doing with that work. I was just going to say that as a profession, um, nursing is called to address uh, vaccine hesitancy um, in order to promote public health. And so um, it, I think it is difficult within the profession for um, professionals to run into other professionals and um, give the time and space and the education that's needed um, because that's needed for healthcare workers as well as the general community. But it is a professional calling almost that we have as nurses to address that hesitancy amongst the public and amongst our peers and so that we can sort of move forward. Now, um, many many of the questions are valid questions that um, the healthcare workers have about the, about the vaccines and not taking them. And so we, we are dealing with that. And then at the same time, caring for patients who um, you know, are struggling with a virus that we believe would not be such a struggle had they been vaccinated 
while we also have patients who don't have COVID who still need healthcare. And that's the part you don't want to forget is we, we are in the midst of a crisis with COVID, but we have always have other patients who are critically ill or have critical needs uh, that need to be taken care of, or even chronic needs that we are pulling resources away from. So, um, you know, you talked about resource allocation. It's not always so obvious as this patient can have a ventilator, but we're out now. So this next patient can't have it. It's more or less that our energy and our time and resources are going to a virus that we believe that we shouldn't be um, having such a high rate of currently. And that is pulling away resources from people who have other illnesses and other care needs that we're not able to spend as much time on or focus on. Thank you. Yes, and I, I fully agree with, with that, Ingrid, that that's outstanding feedback. I think that for me, it's been more a lesson in trust. And which evidence do you trust? And, and why do you trust the evidence that you do? Because there's, we all have our favorite sources of information. And I think that's where a lot of the personal collide comes in, is that we're finally hearing through this example, um, what types of things influence the way people make decisions. And uh, you, we've kind of thought, I think, uh, as, as healthcare professionals, that, that there are certain sources of information that prevail as the source of truth over everything, regardless of our background or anything else, um, what we bring to the table, we're going to believe this information. And what this has revealed within healthcare providers is that's really not true, um, that it's divided that folks have many influential factors on what they believe and don't believe. And this particular virus um, has been an enigma to me, uh, just seeing what some people are influenced by versus what we would consider a respectable source. And so when those conversations ensue in my world and we know that we have a divide, uh, generally folks have avoided that conversation with team members if the team member was not going to be back vaccinated. And now it's been taken care of by the vaccine mandate. Is that a relief, um, Marianne, for those that believe in science? Yes. There's a mandate? Yes. Yes. It's not a relief for those responsible for the staffing. <laughs> no, I imagine. <laughs> because I mean, they're, they're, they're losing um, workers, right, who are choosing not to be vaccinated, who are being suspended. Yes. Yeah. And then that also can impact patient care. And then you have that moral injury of saying, instead of, you know, taking care of one patient, I might have to take care of two patients that is critically ill. And is that right. the challenge right now as well? Right. Yes. So, you know, I want to kind of get back to this. Um, <laughs> I have a colleague who is um, a physician at a hospital in California, and she told me that um, she, was, she was on the COVID floor and um, a patient sadly died. And so she was talking to the patient's um, daughter and getting all the, the death certificate uh, information together. And so the wo woman just vehemently said, you cannot put COVID-19 on his death certificate because he did not believe in COVID-19. And so, I mean, she was as adamant as can be. And the doctor responded. She said, well, you know, I'm a physician. I believe in science and all the indicators of his cause of death is COVID-19. So have you seen this as well? And how do you approach um, people that may have some strong beliefs about not believing that COVID exists? Who'd like to tackle that one? 
Well, I, I can just tackle it from more the, um, well, um, I haven't been a direct care provider very often during this other than providing vaccinations for staff. But when folks don't believe in COVID-19, there's not a whole lot to say about it. If you try to have a basic discussion, you state the facts, you use the most common language that you can. For me, um, looking back, I like. I think we would have done better just talking about pneumonia as the cause of death and then talking about COVID as the cause of the pneumonia, but we didn't do it that way. Um, other than getting into a fight with somebody like that, and it truly does turn into that with people with strong belief systems, they, I mean, you will literally have a verbal altercation with folks like that. And that's why I say that there's such an enigma to me of what influences people to make decisions, because it's really not all about science. It's which science, and is that science true? People have so many doubts about things that I would have considered prior to this event, non-questionable. So this is what you were saying about trust, is that you yes. think, well, it's just a given that if you have this, then you would take this vaccine. I remember being a little girl when they developed the polio vaccine. Of course, that tells you how old I am. And standing in line at our schools, and it was like we had little sugar cubes, but everybody got vaccinated. I, I mean, I can remember parents and all these folks t- saying, thank God our children don't have to be impacted by polio. And, and I think one of the things that um, I, there's a family in, in the area of California that I live in and the, um, the, the mother, the wife was an, a nurse at uh, Kaiser Fontana. The husband was an uh, educator. They were not vaccinated. I think she chose not to be because she was pregnant with their fifth child and they were in their forties and I think maybe even late thirties and they both died of COVID. And then I'm thinking there are five orphans here. Is that ever a, something that we can, I don't know if we're talking about that. If you choose not to get vaccinated, you don't know if that's going to be you. And do you want to leave your kids without their parents? I guess that's the question that keeps, I think about those five kids that will never know their, their, their parents. And I know that's being played out around the country. So I don't know if any of you, any, which one of you would like to comment on that? (laughs) We're silent. I just don't think you can. I mean, and I think that that's part of what makes this so difficult is, um, y- you know, the the stories are so difficult to hear. And um, but for many people, they haven't been touched by these stories. And so it doesn't seem as real yet, perhaps. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure. But we do try to share. I know when we are educating just the public, we try to share the stories of what is happening inside the hospitals. Um, But I think it goes, you know, it all goes back to, again, what Marianne was saying about trust. And there just seems to be a lack of general trust that um, the, you know, the good that, that the healthcare workers are doing every day. And and that's causing a fracture in the system. Well, I just want to say before we take our break um, that I, this, I think we've been talking a lot about the problems and the issues that nurses are facing. So when we come back from the break, I think we'll talk about hopefully some of the answers that may help. I mean, there's not any magic panacea, but I think there's some things that can help nurses and their family members perhaps um, at least get some doses of well-being in the midst of this obvious storm, torrential rains, to use metaphors from nature that I think that's happening. 
And I also want to thank um, Marianne Baird for being with us. I know she had to leave halfway through, but Marianne, thank you so much for bringing your wisdom to our discussion. And thank you. I'm I'm just going to thank you for your service because you are doing a service for your community and being um, the person who's bringing reason and support to your nursing staff. So thank you so much. Thank you, Elaine. Okay. And we will be back uh, with um, Dr. Grabby and Dr. Duva, who will talk about their work with the Community Resiliency Model, a model that can help people get back into what we call their resilient zone, their zone of well-being, and that we have, it has big implications for nurses. All right. We'll be back in just a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karis book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. 
I'm here with Dr. Lindy Grabby and Dr. Ingrid Duva, and they are enlightening us on, on the second part of the show today, how to help nurses during these unprecedented times. We talked the first part of the show about some of the stresses that um, nurses are, are facing that sound to be also unprecedented. So um, we would love to hear more about what do you think are some of the um, skills of well-being and ways to help nurses um, during these times? But I also wanted to say one thing before you start, and that is we talk about right now, the numbers are going down um, in some of the hospitals around the country, although that's not true across all the states in the union. But also I think, you know, maybe we don't talk enough about there's something that happens when you're a nurse in the hospital or a healthcare provider in the hospital when you're taking care of the patients. And even with the numbers going down, that doesn't mean that there isn't an imprint of trauma that some of the nurses are going to be living with or healthcare providers for a long time. So could you also touch upon that? Because I don't want our listeners to think that, oh, the numbers are going down, everything's fine again, because I don't know if that's the case. So, um, Lindy, can we start with you first? Sure. Um, no, there can be a delayed sort of response. I think we can expect a rise in depression and anxiety, as well as um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, sometimes it takes time and um, before um, that to happen. So I think this is a very vulnerable time um, for all health care providers. And I have to say that even before the pandemic, we were already in a crisis um, because of the aging nursing workforce, faculty, and because um, we already had a significant portion of nurses who were um, experiencing um, uh, mental compromise um, uh, the uh, secondary traumatic express, ex, um, uh, distress they felt, the sort of vicarious trauma or um, sometimes direct uh, trauma as well. And when we did our study of uh, nurses at Emory uh, University Hospitals, um, we found that about a third had poor mental well-being, uh, uh, had potential C, uh, PTSD and um, lack of adequate well-being to where they can perform well. And we call that um, presenteeism. So that means you come to work, um, but you're not at your best self. And so um, the care can be compromised. So we really um, must look after the well-being of healthcare providers. And then the pandemic happened. And as you cited the statistics earlier, um, the distress uh, is severe. So people um, outside of healthcare too need to be doing um, more to protect themselves. And that's um, why um, we absolutely uh, jumped on board the ship, which is named <clears throat> the Community Resiliency Model Ship, thanks to uh, Elaine Miller-Karras developing it. And so um, the, uh, we did research pre-pandemic that demonstrated that in a randomized control trial that showed that 
um, the nurses in the intervention group had a inc- significant increase in well-being and significant decline in secondary traumatic stress and physical symptoms, which are the manifestation of trauma and stress that we carry in our bodies. And so do you think that that would bear out um, during the pandemic? I mean, now here we are in this pandemic. Are you doing research, the two of you? And I know there's others. Marianne is also involved in the research and others. Um, Can you illuminate us to what you're seeing now? Well, Ingrid's the PA current study, which we've just wound up. Can you describe that? Yes, please, Ingrid, tell us about the current study. For sure. Let me introduce you to the study. We, um, last summer, recognized first, we went into um, sort of hyperspeed, the need to deploy CRIM around Georgia. And so we had a lot of efforts going out through the state, um, just trying to get the model, community resiliency model, out to as many people as possible because of the heightened stress and anxiety and, you know, all the consequences of the pandemic was having on our emotional and mental well-being. And at that time, we answered a call for studies through um, Emory Hospital and Emory University, looking, trying to support teamwork in healthcare. Um, because if you are familiar enough with healthcare and our focus on safety, much like in the airlines, you know, we're a highly regulated industry um, where there's high risk for when something goes wrong, it's catastrophic or results in death or, you know, mortality, morbidity. So we know that teamwork is critical to safety, good teamwork, strong teams. And so we saw this call come out and, you know, the first thing we recognized, of course, was we see CRIM as supportive in so many ways, but if you aren't able to take care of yourself, you're not able to be a good team member. And then there's a deficit into the teamwork and how the work is being, um, you know, deployed by the team. So we applied for that grant money and we're excited to start our study last. We actually began our, I guess we rolled out our intervention in October. Um, And so, you know, right in the thick of things and we are recruiting participants who are interested in well-being, and it was a randomized study. So we assigned people randomly to the intervention or the control group. And if you can imagine um, how difficult it is to recruit participants anytime during the pandemic, it was um, difficult. We had a lot of people interested in the study, but to actually actually get them to carry through to attend the intervention was challenging. However, um, we had over 250 people sign up and, um, you know, pretty much half and half, half control, half intervention. And I think um, we got about, let's see, half of our intervention uh, participants trained. And we were able to see in that small amount, which was still, um, let's see, about, I don't know, 75 people I think we trained with those numbers. And we only used a one-hour virtual training. So we compacted what we had previously been doing to try to get it out to people in a realistic and feasible way. And we have seen, um, you know, our results are supporting Lindy's prior work before the pandemic where where we've, um, the intervention compared to the control is having a significant, you know, increase in well-being and decrease in secondary traumatic stress. We also tried to measure um, work engagement since we were specifically interested in that for this grant. 
And um, again, smaller sample size, so harder to detect change um, in this study. But we have seen um, some significance in uh, what we what was measured, which was under a subscale called vigor. So it really was just energy for work while you're um, performing your work. And so we felt like that was very important findings during this time. We also were, of course, able to collect some very rich data from all the healthcare workers. And about, I guess, half were about nurses and providers, half of the participants, and half were other roles, um, you know, uh, social work, chaplains, respiratory, just anyone involved in healthcare. Um, but great data on just the stressors that they were dealing with qualitatively, a lot of them at work, a lot of them at home, because we have to remember that they're coming to perform their jobs, but also inundated with the same stress as everybody else related to COVID, children schooling at home, having to wear masks in public, having to mask up at work, uh, you know, all these added you know, sort of what sometimes when we're teaching CRIM, we talk about microaggressions, um, but compounding stressors. And so we feel like this is really um, important uh, findings and um, unfortunate that we can't even get a larger sample. But considering the times, we think it's pretty remarkable that we had that many people sign up and come to our training. So we'll be excited to, to publish those results. I know, too, that um, if we have new listeners, the Community Resiliency Model is a set of six wellness skills. They're very simple. They're based on neuroscience. They're based on the concept that what we pay attention to grows. Um, not only could we teach them to adults, but also to children. And they have been taught to children in different school districts and um, community groups around the country. Um, but the other thing that we're looking at which I think that your Emory team has been really adept at, is looking at how much CRIM do you need to make a change? So Lindy's first study was a three-hour training, and this last one was only one hour. And yet, even with those a shorter time period and the way that you're delivering them and how simple they are to learn, that you're seeing change. So I also want to uh, let our listeners know that if you want to know a little bit more about those skills, that you can go to the traumaresourceinstitute.com. There's webinars that you can take about the skills that are free, but also there is an app called iChill. Totally free. It's in, you can get it with a smartphone. If you don't have a smartphone, you can go to iChillapp.com and you can listen to all the skills and learn them. Many people find the learning the skills also, but they can just learn them through the app. So I just wanted to add that, um, Ingrid. So can you continue a little bit about the research? I mean, is it um, so? You, did you see the same degree of the increase in well-being that Lindy saw in the original study? Lindy, you might be able to respond to that better, comparing it to your first study. Um, but I yes. thought the results were comparable. Yes, it's very similar, and there's a second study that came out in medical care in July, which shows, again, very similar results, and it's that, especially the physical health symptoms, the somatic expressions of, you know, headaches, backaches, and so on, um, they improved. So, we were also sort of pushing the idea of uh, in one hour of CRIM, you will walk away with skills you can use immediately. And more than that, you can share them with people, with patients, with coworkers, with family members. So we call that a CRIM guide. Uh, and certainly we hope people will listen to Elaine's voice on the iChill app because 
It's exactly what we are teaching in that one-hour class. We really think a one-and-a-half-hour class would do the trick best. Um, but uh, so uh, these are so simple. And in our study of nurses, um, what they were doing is using these very simple uh, CRIM skills, noticing their footsteps as they walk down the hall into the patient's room. Um, holding the bed rail and noticing the temperature, the texture of the bed rail, their, even their scrubs, grounding on their scrubs, and um, so, uh, uh, noticing their heart rate or their breathing. The minute, the second even that you do that, um, you're practicing CRIM, and that's going to bring you into a parasympathetic state which is a recovery state for the nervous system. So I think that's the big secret of CRIM because we have these little resiliency moments where we're changing the neurocircuitry in our brain. So the nurses were doing this with dying patients during codes even and during the most um, difficult crises on the unit with coworkers, with family situations. They were using the CRIM skills to, to balance their uh, nervous system come back into a state of equilibrium. Uh, and, you know, um, there, there's this quote that um, between, react, uh, between stimulus and reaction, there is a space. And in that space lies a choice. And in that choice lies freedom. And this is what you do when you're doing CRIM. Now, the other mindfulness techniques, meditation, yoga, we're using some of the same neurocircuitry. And they work for sure to widen the resilient zone over time. But in the moment <laughs> when you're frustrated or angry or really upset, you can use these quick care skills to get back into your resiliency zone. And you don't have to and go into a quiet space. You can do it while you're in the midst of chaos. Yeah, you don't have to have a meditation room or a yoga mat. That's true. You know, I just want to talk a little bit about what you're in uh, for our listeners there's something that's called interoceptive awareness. It's just a, it's our ability to pay attention to the sensations in our body. And what the community resiliency model does is with intention, it helps people understand how to pay attention to their sensations. And so when Dr. Grabby talked about um, the parasympathetic nervous system, we have a break and accelerator of our nervous system. And so basically what they're doing in their one-hour training workshop is they're helping people understand that and also understand that we can call up experiences of our lifetime that have been uh, examples of those moments of well-being that we've had. And when we read our nervous system in connection to them, it feels like it's happening in the present moment. And that seems to be um, one of the powerful parts of paying attention to sensations. So I just wanted to add that little piece. But also, uh, we were talking, Lindy, with a nurse the other day that um, – was uh, sharing with us that she had taught the community resiliency model to a group of nurses in her hospital. Um, I believe it was it was in Alabama. It was at UAB. And what happened was... Can oh, you share that story? Because that really knocked my socks off, literally. Yeah. Um, um, she was doing um, care for the deceased, the folks who had died of COVID. And as nurses, we wrapped the body. And um, as she was that um, she was noticing the sensation of her toes in her shoes and focusing on that as she did this. Uh, and 
um, I think it also not just grounds her, but it's a kind of reverence for the deceased as well, some sort of way to be with them in that moment. And I think what struck me about it was the nurse had been dealing with lots of deaths and that sometimes there's a feeling of kind of wanting to run away, but you have to stay. And so by that paying attention to her toes in her shoes, she was able to be present to the patient, but also present to herself. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about an antidote to moral injury. She could carry out her job as a healing nurse as she was very sacredly taking care of this patient's body. So that was, you know, I want to emphasize that because I don't know if people know how sacred your work is. You know, they think about nurses and, you know, we see it on television, you're working with people that are getting tubes and machines, but there's such a, you know, having been a hospital social worker for many years, I always had so much appreciation for you in the way that you took care of things. And I'm saying kind of the uh, universal you of nurses. So I'm going to come to Ingrid now and I want to see if you want to have anything too to add to this discussion, Ingrid. Well, I just wanted to say I was so glad you brought up that example because um, what drew me to CRIM in the first place, which was pre-pandemic, is the accessibility of the skills in terms of nurses being able um, when we, ta- when we are trained, we're trained to take care of our whole patient. So not just their medical needs, you know, but also their emotional, their mental needs. And so we have this holistic approach, but so often we don't have the skills or know what to do. Um, and, and that is part of what can lead us to burnout is not feeling like we're adequately caring for our patient's needs. We can hang their IV. We can, you know, Um, help them with their activities of daily living. We can help rehab them, but actually addressing some emotional needs. um, I think that the model CRIM provides these accessible uh, skills for us um, to use as guides um, to help our patients. And we have an example from a nurse here, um, an Emory nurse who was trained in the community resiliency model. And she emailed us last summer when she was taking care of a, well, maybe it was right when the vaccines came out. Sorry. So it must've been the winter when the vaccines came out and she was doing vaccines for the patients in her clinic. And she said that she had several of her elderly patients were very anxious being the first set of patients to come through for vaccines. And she used grounding with them to help them settle um, sort of their emotions and get in that state so that they were able to get their vaccine. And that helped her feel like she had done a better job. And these are the things that save us from burnout and help us go back to work every day when we feel like despite all the odds being against us and how busy it is and short staff, but when we can make a difference like that and have those tools, it's really, and that was a that was something that's been a gap for nurses. So again, this is what drew me to the community resiliency model in the first place is this is a set of skills that nurses can take into the fold of their work every day to feel like they're doing a better job taking care of the whole patient. And you just, there aren't words to express how great that is. Hmm. And so I was just thinking as you were saying it, that's like these little moments that we get to have, you know, there's so much poison in the world. Oh, here's an antidote. Here's a little bit of something that we can give to ourselves being present for our patient in that way. That is, I guess, one of the antidotes to this moral injury that we're talking about. Because when you feel like you can provide some, some care, And also, you know, we talked about creating safer spaces and uh, safety. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe 
talk a little bit about that because when I hear you talk about that story in that moment, that nurse helped those elderly patients feel safer to be able to get that dosage. And it seems like that's a big uh, aspect, large aspect of what you do as nurses is helping create safer spaces. So I'm going to go to Lindy for that one. Lindy, you've been doing this for a long time. Want to say anything about that? Well, um, I also teach nursing students right now. And, you know, they have a lot of information to get if they're going to interview a patient. But it's really the connection. It's laying that, um, developing that sense of trust. And the only way that you can do it is um, by being open to hearing the patient's story and truly listening and being present for them, and then proceeding questioning based on what they say, rather than your checklist of what the information is that, that you have to have. Some of those questions you still need to, you know, are you having suicidal thoughts? Are you um, um, using any substances right now? But it's that connection that is critical for the patient to feel like they are going to get help, they will feel better. And if you can throw some prim in there, it really it makes the power. In there, that helps as well. Well, we're almost, we're getting close to ending our time together. And I'm wondering if there's any words of wisdom that either of you want to say as we're almost ready to, to leave each other today. So Ingrid, is there anything, um, Dr. Duva, that you would like to say? I think just based on the work that I've had the opportunity to participate in is that just the community resiliency model, if you're in need of um, support for well-being for yourself and your emotional regulation or your patients, it's a gift and it's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> That's a sweet thing to say. And how about you, Lindy? What would you like to say? I just have, uh, when we do CRIM, we often resource people. That takes a little time. Um, But you're really, um, something emerges from very deep within um, that is a resource for the person that is something that is their best medicine, actually. And you get to hear it, and that's a gift to you as well. But you've helped them um, create some neurocircuitry for resilience that um, they didn't know was there before. It's almost like you're being a guide to what's already there. You're just shining a light on it. And that's so empowering to the person because you're not doing it to them. They're actually doing it for themselves. You're just helping them go there. So, oh my goodness, that's wonderful. So I imagine there might be some people listening that want to know how to get a hold of you too. So can you tell us a little bit about crimgeorgia.org? Yes, um, a hard group of a hardcore of crim teachers here in Georgia of the 70 or so now. Um, We've started a website um, and please check it out, www.crmgeorgia.org. And there's a lot of information about CRIM there and what we've been able to accomplish so far, as well as um, the abstracts for the articles that we've created. And so I would just like to say to both of you, thank you so much. I am so fortunate to have you both as my colleagues and, I, and friends. And I know that we'll have more conversations together in the future in many different avenues. And for our listeners, you know, I think one of the things that you have heard me say over and over again is thinking about what else may be true in your life right now. If you're a healthcare provider or you love a healthcare provider and they're suffering, 
remember what else is true in your life. Remember those moments that, that sparkle. Remember, you know, what helped you get through some difficult times. And remember, too, that if you want more information about um, how to learn about the Community Resiliency Model, you can go to www.traumaresourceinstitute.com. So thank you so much again. And until next time, uh, we will, uh, I just want to wish you well for the rest of your day, all of our listeners. Our, our show next week is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be called Trauma, Transformation, and Ted Lasso. So, um, we will talk more about that subject. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.